Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. We are so glad to be with you. That's me, uh, Tim Butler, and my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you? Uh, I'm good, Tim. Wonderful to be with you again. It's wonderful to be with you, too. It seems like forever. In fact, it's been an entire year, hasn't it? <laughs> Hardy har. Har har. Indeed, it has, though. We're in 2023, and... Brand new year, and but same show. Indeed. So, any resolutions for the new year, comrade? Um, no. I have no resolutions that I'm aware of. Maybe, maybe when, uh, maybe when Lent rolls around a little later this year, uh, then there'll be some resolutions, but not for the new year. No. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm kind of the same way. I. I... A few years ago, jokingly said I had resolved not to make any resolutions, and if I did resolve to do that, it was the most successful resolution I've ever made, because I usually don't make resolutions around New Year's. <laughs> but you're right, a season like Lent is a perfect time to maybe reflect on how we can improve, probably better than what we do on New Year's, where it's all about, you know, how are we going to eat more healthfully, or, or do more exercise, or all those sort of just self-improvement on a very superficial level kind of level. Um, boy, that was very profound sounding, wasn't it? Uh, but, you know, uh, how much better it is when we look at a season like Lent, which is coming up hopefully a few zippy episodes from now. Uh, we'll try to fit a few in between now and then, but we're coming up down the road here, and it's focused more on how do we spiritually improve. So, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and I think that's... That's the benefit of um, following the liturgical seasons because if you do it right and it's not just something that you do, um, you have the priority of grace always reminding you that whatever you resolve to do in a liturgical season like Lent, uh, trying to grow closer to Jesus, it has to start with grace, whereas a lot of our resolutions – they start um, with our our effort, whether it's losing weight or whatever it is, um, and anything anything that is begun with human effort in the spiritual realm is going to come to nothing as it is. So I think it reminds us of the priority of grace, and we can't possibly hear that enough. So that got deep really fast, but I think that's a good way to start off the show as far as that goes. I can't think of much better. Unfortunately, we're going to take a turn from the highly sanctified to the not-so-sanctified, which is a way of segueing into our latest dip into the intrigue of the DC Beltway and what's happening there. Certainly, over the last year, we've heard an awful lot about confidential papers and their mishandling with President Trump and his papers he took with him out of office and the questions on should he have had those papers at all? Was he handling what he did have properly? Uh, was the FBI justified in raiding his home to retrieve the papers and so on? But now it's gotten a bit more interesting, hasn't it, comrade? Yeah, that's right, because uh, the sitting president, uh, President Biden, there, there were papers found um, in his D.C. office and I think in his home as well. Is that right? And um, so... How did those get there, and and who 
allowed that to happen. And if we're going to hold, uh, you know, one person responsible for their mishandling of documents, then uh, a different partisan makeup shouldn't change how we handle that. But I, I was saying to you um, before we went on the air that um, we seem to have leaders in both parties across several years, not just those two presidents, but uh, Secretary Clinton uh, mishandled some stuff. Uh, we seem to have people in high places uh, who don't know to ha how to handle these documents properly. So however that shakes out in the politics in terms of who wins and who loses is sort of secondary to why do we have leaders that don't know how to protect our secrets or are unwilling to do uh, what is required to do that. So we'll, we'll see um, what happens, but I think it's an ongoing concern that so many of our leaders are mishandling these documents. Uh, so that that's the only reaction I had that topic. Yeah, what you say there, I think, really should strike at where the conversation ought to go, which is I tend to think that probably you and I are more careful with the information we have that's most confidential than it seems like present and past leaders of the free world and those at the highest echelons of, of, of government seem to be with documents that could do far, far more harm if ending up in the wrong hands. Uh, and I've been pretty consistent in my reaction. I know when some of these revelations came out about President Trump, I felt like it was a justified concern of the government that he had kept these documents, documents that were classified, and all this rhetoric about, well, he had the power to declassify them, and yet we should note he didn't uh, declare them declassified. All this rhetoric trying to somehow defend the indefensible, that documents weren't handled properly, was unhelpful. And I'll say the same thing here. If, as it seems, we're learning that President Biden not only kept documents after leaving office as vice president, he not only kept them, he kept them in several different locations, including his garage at his home. That should deeply trouble us. And I'm not ready to jump in and say well, they're both equivalent. We need to learn what sort of documents were kept by both presidents. We need to learn a lot more details. We shouldn't just jump to, well, they both did exactly the same thing, or tried to immediately say, well, one of them was much better than the other because of X, Y, and Z, because we just don't know that much yet. But what I do think we know is that they're not handling things well, and uh, both of them have been rather flippant about it. For example, right after the, the papers were revealed around President Biden, and he was questioned about it, he said, well, I locked my garage. And I, I just don't think that's a, a particularly great answer for for defending one's protection of confidential documents. Yes, he did point out that his Corvette's in there, and I know he loves his cars, and so car owners around the world might say, well, of course, yeah, the most secure place is wherever my car is. But, you know, that wasn't good. President Trump trying to turn it into this all a witch hunt when, when in fact, this should be what we... We should be upset when this sort of thing happens. Both of them aren't really showing themselves as great stewards of confidential information. Neither did Secretary Clinton. I suspect if we look too too terribly hard, we'll find a lot of the others in power haven't done all that well either. And maybe it's time to demand that we fix that. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no way that those type of documents should be in anyone's garage, whether it's locked or whatever else you want to say. Those documents shouldn't be anywhere. Um, take them where they're supposed to be. And if you can't have staff that is willing to abide by the strictest standards for handling these things, because it could come out that, oh, there was a there was a staff person that was lazy and put them where they ended up. But if you can't have a staff that doesn't understand the gravity of the situation, you need to get a different staff. Uh, I agree with you completely. Our leaders aren't handling this well, and they're not taking accountability, um, as you just said. So let's hope there's some accountability. Let's hope there's some nonpartisan ways to go forward and how we can do this better because I, I, I think we're all tired of just kind of throwing mud at each other when the wrong person does the wrong thing um, and it becomes a political game instead of uh, what's best for the country and uh, what's best for that information and how to keep it safe so we're in agreement on that which I know is annoying uh, for some of the listeners, they like it when we, maybe they like it, they would like it more if we disagreed more than we do, but uh, there we are. Yes. Uh, one thing I'll say before we move on, I, I am pleased thus far with what I'm hearing about how Attorney General Garland is handling this. He, of course, appointed a, a special counsel to deal with the, the issues around President Trump. And uh, that special counsel seems to have a, a good reputation, uh, certainly an aggressive reputation, so there's that, but a good reputation. And likewise, it seems the special counsel appointed to investigate President Biden's handling of papers seems to have a good reputation. Notably, the special counsel appointed to deal with President Trump has at least some ties to Democratic uh, Party operatives. And the special counsel appointed to investigate President Biden was appointed by Republican President Trump. So we might even say that there's some bipartisanship there. I don't know how intentional that is, but it, it may appear, at least on the surface, as though someone who could perhaps privately, you know, they hold this close to their vest as prosecutors, but someone who would lean perhaps on the Republican side may be dealing with President Biden and someone who would lean on the Democratic side appears to be dealing with President Trump. So uh, maybe I'll keep everybody honest. That, that could be, yeah, that could be really, really good, but that could be really, really bad. So um, we'll see, you know, how it goes. I, I do think it's really interesting, and we should come back to this for a future segment, the, the background of Jack Smith, who's the special counsel, can considering the, the matters around President Trump, is a fascinating man. I, I didn't really know anything about him before he was appointed, but has spent the last few years working at The Hague, prosecuting war, war crimes in Serbia and Kosovo, including managing to bring down the war hero of Kosovo who had been leading that, uh, that country uh, since it's achieved independence from Serbia. So uh, he's very, very good at what he does um, in getting who he goes after. So that that's an interesting thing in itself, maybe something worth talking about. But 
my big hope is that justice is done. And I think the American people, if we could quit worrying about our, our side winning and just hope that justice is done, I think we would be a lot better off. I agree. Well, we cannot guarantee that in our society today. Oftentimes, justice is not done, and certainly we are immersed in partisanship. Somehow we have to escape that every once in a while and refresh. And a way to do that, a great way to do that in the new year, if you did make some resolutions and one of them was, I'd like to be in the Bible more, and another one was, I'd like to expand my vocabulary, well, you're in luck because you can go to biblical.com. That's B-I-B-L-I-C-L-E dot com. That's B-I-B-L-I-C-L-E dot com and play the most enjoyable Wordle clone in existence. And that's the one that brings a word a day game from the Bible. You get the passages that word shows up in in the English Bible and you can explore probably a lot of things about the Bible you may not even know while having some fun playing a game that follows the rules of Wordle. So check it out, biblical.com. No advertising, just a free gift from your friends at faithtree.com. Comrade, we find ourselves at a segment that's made us both a bit sad, hasn't it? We lost Pope Benedict a few weeks ago. It wasn't particularly unexpected, I suppose, on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, he's been such a huge presence this millennium, really, in the theology of Christendom. It's 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 sad to think about going forward without him, and so we want to take a few minutes and reflect on that. I, I will try to be brief, um, but I've had the chance to read um, a lot of it, well, not a lot, I'm sure people have read more than me, but several of his books, and I've benefited from his erudition, his intelligence. Um, I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. Uh, many people know about his series on the Gospels called Jesus of Nazareth, um, and I, I at least read the first volume, and it's excellent, and it does an excellent job of dealing with some of the higher criticism with respect to whether the Gospels are genuine and whether we can trust the Gospel accounts as to the person of Jesus. Uh, But in such a gracious way and in such a scholarly way at the same time. So that's a great book. But also he wrote a book called Theological Highlights of Vatican II when he was a young deacon uh, serving a bishop there at, at Vatican II. And he wrote that book in 1972. Um, and he's so aware of not only the movements that were going on in the Catholic Church at the time, but um, a lot of the movements that were happening in the Protestant world as well. And he's uh, he's conversant with your buddy uh, Karl Barth, and he um, is conversant with so many other... Um, Protestant theologians, and as you know, just in general, we could talk about how he facilitated um, Protestant and Catholic dialogue um, across that divide, and how he was beloved for his intellect, but also his warmth across that divide. And I wanted to highlight one more book that meant a lot to me. It's called The Spirit of the Liturgy, um, and it shares 
the same name with an older book by an Italian theologian. But this, this is a wonderful little book that that sort of integrates how our worship is meant to be connected with the rest of our lives. It's not this other thing. Um, our leisure time, our uh, the way we interact in the community, uh, um, the, the way we interact in politics, all, all flows from the reality of what Christ has given us in the gospel. And so connecting that all together and there's a little bit of reminiscing for the for the unity of medieval Europe um, in how the like the parish system in the European towns uh, all, all the European towns and cities were centered around the parish and it's not like that anymore so we've lost an element of that um, but how to connect everything into what Christ has already done for us and, and some work by uh, Joseph Pieper. Um, I think I, I think his name is Joseph. Um, on on uh, on leisure and how that fits into Christian living is also um, reproduced there in large part. So Benedict, uh, the Pope Emeritus, he was influential on so many people. I loved him. He helped me a lot. I still enjoy reading his books, and I'm sad that he's gone. Sorry to talk so much there. Hopefully there's some good stuff in there. Oh, nope. You weren't talking too long at all. Um, I haven't read him as, as, as extensively as you have, but I, I know a, a number of his writings that I have read have been influential to me. I certainly appreciate his work in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith towards further cooperation with, with Protestants as a a Protestant who enjoys theology and enjoys much of of Catholic theology, it was nice to see the work that he did to acknowledge those of us who are on the other side of the river and not in any way, of course, denying Catholicity or anything else that you'd expect the Pope to affirm, and yet coming at it with an attitude that I think has done nothing but help cooperation between Christians in our present state where we are divided. And you and I, comrade, were talking on during men's Bible study earlier tonight about that yearning for the day that we all are united and we're not divided into little denominations and non-denominational denominations and everything else. We may not get there. We almost certainly won't get there until Jesus returns. But I certainly appreciated what Pope Benedict did to, to help encourage as much unity as we possibly could, and to to help further Protestant Catholic dialogue. I, I think that's often a part that I like to bring up about him because the sort of the media portrayal of him as this stern, hardline traditionalist made a lot of people that really didn't know much about him just assume he was some kind of almost villain. And, and yet, uh, what he was really just simply doing was standing up. At so many points, simply for biblical truth, for the sorts of things that Christians, whether they're Catholic or not, can can applaud and, and should be thankful that for the de- the decade plus that he was Pope, that the the Christian in our present world who has the biggest pulpit, that he was using it to convey 
orthodox Christian truth, and, and I certainly appreciate that. One story that I can tell you that happened in my own life um, here in town, uh, not here in town, I'm in South Carolina, but back in St. Louis when I was still in St. Louis, uh, they like to have a, a Lutheran Catholic joint service at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis. And so I happened to be there before that service was going to start um, because I was worshiping there right before that service was going to start. And so I was leaving and I could see all these Lutherans were coming in and all of a sudden, and, and we, we sang the same song at mass right beforehand, but the song that was playing as I was leaving was um, not the church's one foundation, the one that Luther wrote that was the, the hymn of the Reformation. Mighty Fortress? A Mighty Fortress. A Mighty Fortress is our God. And I thought, there is no way, the only way that this would be sung as a congregational song in a Catholic church was if, as if God himself had raised up Joseph Ratzinger as Pope Benedict and that dialogue that happened between Catholics and Lutherans. I mean, we sang that in Mass, and then I heard it as I was leaving the joint service between them because um, I wasn't going to stay for that. And that's just ast astonishing. That, that, that was, for Catholics, that would have been symbolic of... Uh, our disunity at that moment in the 16th century. And here it is in the 21st and it's part of a joint service between them. Just astonishing and truly beautiful and, um, and exciting that the Holy spirit made that possible. And a, a giant like Benedict was part of God making that possible. So um, I, I'm still happy about that years later. So, I'm sad that he's gone, and I'm I'm grateful for all the work that he did to bring Christians together and to bring uh, the truth of Jesus to so many people. So, Amen. Uh, maybe a, a last thing to say on it. I, I shared this on social media, and I saw it going around, and I thought, well, I, sh I should check to make sure this is true before I shared it. And it, it seems by every account that I have found to be true that the reports of his last words before his death were either I love you, Jesus, or I love you, Lord. And so all the all the profound things that he wrote and did, it boiled down to that. And I think that is, may that be the way each of our lives end. What a wonderful way to to end one's life. I can't possibly agree more.
So it is a new year, and earlier we talked about resolutions. Another thing you may have resolved is, I want to get out of that doom-scrolling mode, where I, I go online and say, I want to know what's happening in the world, so I'll go on social media, and then two hours later I realize I've seen some funny cat memes and become enraged at several political matters and really haven't learned anything of meaning. There's a different way to go about it, and it's an old way and yet a new way, and that would be what you can do at faithtree.com. Stop by faithtree.com today to sign up for a free account. There's no subscription fee and no advertising. You just go there, you sign up, you can add your favorite news sources, you can check your weather, your stocks, all the sort of things that you go on the internet wanting to know, and you can do it without having to doom scroll through things that are specifically served to you to make you angry or upset. Instead, you can pull in sources that matter and inform. You can get the latest sources that are, are from the Christian realm and the secular realm, and you can do it all for free, stay informed, and use your time more wisely in this new year, and you can do that at faithtree.com. Faithtree.com also has a whole section of devotionals, and comrade, you and I have been part of a group contributing to those devotionals over the last few years. This this year, we're doing it a little differently. The last two years, we did full-year devotional journeys. We did 52 verses from 52 books in 52 weeks back in 2021. Now, last year, we just wrapped this up. We went through the Psalms, all 150 of them in a year. That was a fun adventure. We're breaking up into quarters this year, and the first quarter, we're looking at the major concerns of the minor prophets. and. I'm excited to do it. I, I think we often kind of buzz past the minor prophets. We see some judgment oracles and think, oh, uh, that's uh, that's some judgment, and move on, and let's get back to the Gospels or something. But the, the minor prophets are rich in teaching of God's faithfulness and his love, and I'm excited that we're going to spend some time helping those that join us on this journey to think about what God's saying in those minor prophets. And I think, um, just to add more to the background there, when Jesus is in his office as prophet in the Gospels, the things that are being quoted in the New Testament while that is happening is the minor prophets, most of all. So when the Gospel writers and the Lord Jesus himself out of his mouth, when he's talking, what they're quoting from is the minor prophets. And so I think... Like you you did um, Joel recently, or you're going to do Joel uh, for that series, and remembering how Joel 2 was the setup for what's going on in Acts, and when Peter gives his sermon connecting those Old Testament passages to Jesus, then the response is, brothers, what shall we do? And the answer is, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. When you go back to the original context of Joel, it, it was that way that Luke and Joel were saying that time is running out, and it's time to turn to Jesus now. So we're going to do, uh, do something briefly from Obadiah tonight. I know I set it up with Joel and, and Acts 2, but... There, there's a couple verses here um, in Obadiah, and what's interesting about Obadiah, it's only one chapter. I had forgotten that at some point in the past here, 
but it's only it's only one chapter, and I'm picking it up in verses 17 and 18, and the heading right before that in most of the Bibles is going to be, you know, Israel's triumph or Israel's final triumph or something like that. And so there's judgment in the first 16 verses, and then there's Israel's triumph through the end of the chapter. So it says this in verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Jacob a flame. And the house of Esau stumble, they shall burn and consume them. Um, and there and there shall be no survivor to the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And and the a little bit of the context there is Esau was the one that got tricked by Jacob, and and later was rebelling against God and rebelled against Jacob as he took the promise as he stole the blessing that was going to be meant for Esau. So Esau is this biblical symbol all the way back of, of the enemies of God. So Edom as a whole is the community that's formed around Esau. And that line of people are the ones that are opposing God's people. And as it goes on throughout the rest of the passage, it's very reminiscent of, the promise that Jesus gave to Peter where upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so there's this ongoing theme of the people of God are going to possess the land, the, the authority that was once held by the enemies of God or the opponents of God. And that's our encouragement, because if we are in Christ, then we will possess all that, because everything that has been given to Christ will be given to us who claim Christ by faith. So that's a bit of a long-winded way to say the minor prophets have a lot in there that we can use, uh, that we can learn from, and it all leads back to Jesus and the covenant in Jesus and the covenant love in Jesus. So sorry for the rant again. You're the pastor, but uh, there we go. It didn't sound like a rant to me. It sounded like a very good summary of the hope that we find in a, in a book like Obadiah. I, um, For my devotional contribution to our little series from Obadiah, I focused on verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, he says to, to Edom, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob sh- shall possess their own possessions. <clears throat> it, it seems like it kind of encapsulates that whole message that you were conveying, comrade, this idea that on the one hand there is judgment, but God is a God who is faithful and merciful, and he restores. and I, I imagine the original Israelite exiles, the, the people of Judah that are exiled in Babylon, hearing this and feeling hope, because, yes, they're experiencing God's judgment, but they're not forgotten. God's going to restore. And that's what really struck me as I was working on this for our series, how often we need to hear that, because we feel like we're maybe experiencing the, the force of our own mistakes and sin, 
whether it's the natural consequences or divine judgment. And we feel like we're feeling that, but we need, but in that, God always reminds us of how he restores and how he offers us that restoration in Jesus. And I think sometimes because we go into the Old Testament and we want to read it as somehow different, and we want to read it where God is being very legalistic and demanding, and that somehow plays into our understanding of the gospel, we miss out on this. Because God has shown throughout all time in history that he's a God who is merciful and loving. That becomes to fruition in Jesus, that everything leads to Jesus. But God didn't change. God built that whole path that goes to Jesus because he's the God who, who restores and who loves. And he's done that from the very beginning, and he will continue doing that until all things are made new. There was mercy the whole way. And I would just say quickly that, and I echo everything that you've said, um, I, w- I would say quickly that we're really good at beating up on ourselves. But if if God has declared us his own sons and daughters, then who are we to argue with God? And and that's where the notes of hope come in because he'll tell he'll tell us loud and clear, no matter what testament you're in, that that's what he intends to do. And we're sitting there going Somehow I'm beyond the love of God, and that's impossible. That's impossible, and that's the message that we need to take for ourselves. Yes, um, it's not cheap grace. It never was, and it's not a cheap forgiveness and a cheap redemption, but it is real. You will never fall beyond the mercy and forgiveness of God. Um and it's something that he always wanted to do. He loved you from the beginning. He died for you even when you were at your worst. Those things are all true. And uh, we need to remember that we're so good at beating up on ourselves, like you're kind of saying. But God doesn't want to do that. He wants to save us. So if we can't take hope from that, well, we need to go back and start over because... That's pretty hopeful, if you ask me. Absolutely. Amen. I can't think of a better way to wrap up our show than just dwelling on that, thinking about that. It never gets old. Well, comrade, we are at the end of the show. Yet another zippy, but I am so glad to be in our third calendar year of recording zippy with you. It's always a joy, and I hope that our listeners are enjoying our continued banter and exploration of the news and culture that matter to you. We're two Christian guys doing that. And if you are enjoying, dear listener, then please do subscribe, whether you're on Apple Podcasts or Amazon Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you might be. We are every place that finer podcasts are purveyed, and we hope that you will subscribe to us. You can also check out past episodes at zippythewondersnail.com and, of course, on our home at ofb.biz, open for business. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I'll look forward, comrade, to being back with you in the near future. And I'll look forward to being with you. It's an honor every time, Tim. It's an honor to join you in this as well. 